Lord Jesus, I'll give you thanks. You're so good. Send your spirit right now that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You're welcome, Johnny. Um, I don't know what it means that that's the first time anyone's ever applauded me when I was preaching, but uh, thank you, Johnny, for that. On the day the church was birthed by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter commanded everyone present to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In the Gospel of Luke, we read of Jesus sending His disciples to preach repentance and forgiveness to the nations. We Christians are those forgiven ones who pray daily that our forgiveness is connected to the forgiveness we receive from our Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, if we don't forgive, neither will our Father in heaven forgive us. Forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. It is central to our adoption as sons and daughters. It is central to being at peace with God. It is central to the entire kingdom of grace and mercy. Forgiveness is even a fundamental way that we receive and give love in this world and we are commanded to love. There are a lot of Greek and Hebrew words which get translated into forgiveness in the Bible. If you don't know, the Bible was originally written uh, in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Originally, it was, these were stories told and letters written and these kind of poems made and these kinds of things. But eventually, this gets transcribed in Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew, and then we have to translate it. The Bible, from the time you read it, has already been enculturated already, translated and interpreted through people who are doing the work to do that for us. There's a lot of different words that get translated into forgiveness when you read it in English. And different words and phrases, they they may mean essentially the same thing as it relates to forgiveness of sins, but you might read in the Bible of sins being covered over or forgotten, of atonement or the releasing of debt, of something owed which is canceled. Forgiveness has all kinds of implications. For our purposes tonight, let's define forgiveness as letting someone off the hook. Letting someone off the hook. If you are someone... Uh, who likes taking notes, tonight is a good night for you. If you're someone who doesn't like to to take notes, uh, tonight is a good night to start. Um, You're going to need it. We have a bunch of Bibles in the back. You can get up and get one. I will not be offended. Anytime you want to grab a Bible, that's great. You can use your phone, notes app, whatever else. Any quotes I put on the screen, uh, I'll be sure to share in our group me later in case you want to have them so you don't have to furiously write down those. Um, So any of the slides we put up, I'll drop there, okay? Uh, For our purposes tonight, forgiveness means letting someone off the hook. We good? Thanks. Uh, Tim Keller, who I'll quote here up on the screen. Actually, you can start putting that up, Casey. Tim Keller defines forgiveness as stopping the cycle of violence with yourself. Look at how Keller outlines forgiveness here in an interview. He said, forgiveness is granted, it's an event, before it's felt. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. It's a promise before God not to take revenge on a wrongdoer for his or her sin against you. Making that promise entails three practical commitments. You promise, one, not to constantly bring up the sin to the wrongdoer in order to browbeat and punish them. Two, not to constantly bring up the sin to other people in order to hurt the wrongdoer's reputation and relationship with others. And three, not to constantly bring up the sin to yourself 
not to keep the anger hot, not to replay the video of it in order to cherish the feeling of nobility and virtue that comes with having been treated unjustly. At first, when you make those commitments, granting forgiveness, you don't feel forgiving at all. You are still angry. That's natural. But if you keep the commitments in a disciplined way, which will be hard, which will be hard, and you remember the vertical dimension, you and God, that you are a sinner living wholly by God's grace, then slowly but surely you will feel the forgiveness you have granted. I'll drop that in the group me if you want to argue with it. If someone has sinned or done evil against me, to forgive them means I'm not going to pay them back for what they did. I'm not repaying violence for violence. I'm letting them off the hook and deciding that in the cycle of violence, I will stop it here and swallow the sword. I will take the last hit, I will take the last insult, and instead of returning it to you to try to make it even or to give someone what's due, what you're going to do, what I'm going to do, is absorb and swallow the wounds, not from a place of passivity and weakness, but from a place of strength knowing that I am a forgiven one in God, and, and though this might wound or hurt me, I too shall live even if through resurrection. That's forgiveness. And if it sounds foolish, it is. The wisdom of God is foolish in this world. That's not just, if you've heard it before, uh, something poetic to say or whatever. That's got teeth in it. We actually just sang a song a second ago which had some line like, the scandal of grace. If grace doesn't sometimes seem to you scandalous, then you haven't looked at it hard enough. This is precisely what we see on the cross when Jesus is suffocating and bleeding out and crying out to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's ridiculous to look at Jesus on the cross doing that and, and, then, and then look at everybody, but you guys want to be like him? He didn't defend himself. Who would want to be like him? Of course, it turns out multitudes throughout history have looked at Jesus and seen a better Lord and a better kingdom than any others that we find in this world. And, and even as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the grave and His victory over death, and we have confidence because of the historic reality of His embodied resurrection, it is often His passion, His suffering, which actually wins over so many of us. His willingness to go low, to be meek, His humility, His gentleness, these stunning moments where with His dying breath, He's thinking about His best friend and His mom and His enemies, and He's calling down all the resources of heaven to bless them, not Him. Friends, forgiven ones. That is the one who made you. This is he who sustains you. Behold the man upon the cross. It is his kindness which leads us to repentance.
which means change. To be willing to face the reality that we even need forgiveness in the first place. It may be foolish in the eyes of the world, but it is the very power of salvation for those who believe. God has a fundamental posture of forgiveness toward you. You cannot outsin His grace, and as long as today is called today, there is still hope. I'll say it this way if repentance is possible, forgiveness is offered. Full stop. If repentance is possible, then forgiveness is offered. Or as I said in our staff meeting this morning, in the uh, words of Justin Bieber, God never writes us off. How are we to respond to this? I'm glad you asked. I have an amazing visual aid to help lead us in this. This is my amazing visual aid that I drew. Forgiveness applied. Okay, so here we are. You'll notice Jesus Christ is at the top. This little thing on is like a halo signifying holiness. And then you'll notice down here in the middle, there's Christians. We've got our own holiness bestowed upon us by Jesus. Isn't that great? Okay. Um, Jesus reigns over all things. He's up top. He is the judge and Lord over all things. Vengeance. Payback. That's his, not ours. That's why we're lower in this image. Our acts of judgment right now are not final. They are in part. And we should remember that they are in part. We do not have access to all the circumstances and variables. Even when somebody has sinned and it's clear that they sinned against me, what I don't know is how difficult it would have been for me to do anything other than that in their situation. That doesn't mean they didn't sin. That just means they are in the hands of God for their evil and their sin. And we need to put our hands over our mouths rather than to judge one another. We'll get more nuanced because here's the trick. In the scriptures, God provides us with teachings that create a kind of tension. Teachings which exist on two poles, leaving us in the middle of this tension. So you'll see on the diagram, on one side we have something I'm just calling turn your cheek. On the other side, I have something called confront or confrontation. And I'm not going to, you know, teach through each of these texts, but I want you to hear the kinds of things said in them. So I'm going to read through a couple of excerpts, and then I want you to notice and feel the tension. We read this first one from, I'm just going to read the left hand, or our, your left hand side first from Leviticus. We read this already, but just a part of that. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 5, you've heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 13, I'm just going to summarize for you. It's quite a long passage. But Jesus tells this parable of the weeds. And then, and then you want to keep reading because he tells the parable, tells another parable, and then he explains the parable of the weeds. You have to like keep going to find the explanation of it. But Jesus talks about, he tells this parable of this man who, who has this field of wheat and he goes to sleep at night. In the middle of the night, Satan comes in or something and sows all these weeds among the wheat. And, and you can't tell that they're one from the other when they're young. But when they grow up and they 
bear fruit, you can kind of see which one's different. And Jesus essentially says there's this temptation among us to go out and try to tear out the, wheat, the weeds from the wheat. And he says, that's not your business. Let them grow together for a while. Because in so doing, you might be so violent that you actually tear out wheat along with the weeds and cause more harm than good. What you need to know and trust is that I will judge and I will send my reaper to tear out the weeds. It's a pretty intense parable. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Oh, this is a good one for tonight. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That would be a phenomenal meditation. Where, where, where is, a, is there a root of bitterness anywhere in your heart or mind towards somebody? If there is a root somewhere, root it out. So that's on one side, and that sure looks like, as you read these passages, to like, well, I, I, I shouldn't judge. I need to turn my, the cheek. I need to, to not tend to sort of tearing out evil out of the world, these kinds of things. Okay, let's move over to the right-hand side with the confrontation Verses Matthew 18, we read tonight, we'll unpack that a little bit more later. So Luke 17, 1 through 4, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Oh, this is so intense. Uh, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. This is Jesus. Than that he should cause one of the little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they sin against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one, another, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, yeah, I will because it's awesome uh, and intense. And if you don't know this, you've got to hear these words. Okay, now we command you, brothers, in the name, this is to a young church, okay, in Thessalonica. Um, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother or sister who is walking in idleness. They're not being productive. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us, that is the church the, the traditions that they're passing down. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let them not eat. For we hear some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. You ever thought about the fact that doing good can make you weary? If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Here's from Titus. This is Paul's letter to a young elder or pastor of sorts. As, a, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning them once or twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and they are self-condemned. 
sufficiently intense? Do you see how these texts kind of create a little bit of tension? One is like warn and, and rebuke and stay away from, and, and this one is don't judge. And you might notice that if you, or you might realize this as I say it, if you live all the way on one side of this tension, on one pole or the other, like if you let sin go totally unchecked, you will in the long run participate in creating chaos, wounds, and hurt everywhere. If no one ever steps in to discipline or correct sin, it leads to death. And when we see it happening, we're, we're usually furious because we wonder who should have stepped in and stopped the violence. Rather than fostering unity, just not ever having the discerning judgment of sorts against sin, it fosters corruption and evil from within if you live out over there. But on the other side, if every sin is confronted, if every single thing is called out, who can live under that kind of scrutiny? And so we exist in this tension, knowing that we should be fundamentally forgiving and confront sin. How do we do that? How do we live in the midst of this tension? And we're going to land tonight on this key text from Matthew 18, okay? This is a text that comes up over and over again every single year for me in the context of college ministry. It comes up with my friends. It came up this weekend with friends in my church. Jesus gives us this four-step process in Matthew 18. And he doesn't give step-by-step instructions often. And so if you're somebody that likes simplicity and you're like starved for, for like, I, I just want you to list it out for me. Here you go. Take advantage of it. Jesus doesn't do this often, okay? Um, his teaching and his process are so good that even hearing it means many people start forgiving before they even get to the first step. That's how good of a teacher Jesus is. And people who go to step one rarely need to go to step two. And people who get to step two almost never get to step three. This is how good Jesus' teaching is, okay? Lock this process in, okay? Would you put up that slide for Matthew 18? I just broke it down into the steps. You could read Matthew 18, verses 15 down through 20-something if you want. He continues to tell a parable after this, uh, doubling down and referring back to the importance of forgiveness and all these things, but we're not going to talk about the parable today. We're just going to talk about these few verses where he lists out this four-step process about how to confront a brother or sister in sin. We read this earlier. I'm going to break it down for you with these bold words. If someone sins against you, go and tell them privately. So step one is tell them privately, alone. Step one, if, if a brother or sister sins against you, okay, this is like the first part of step one, and I, I didn't put brother and sister in there, but it's in the, orig- in the original text as brother, which, which at the time would have meant brother or sister, trust me. Okay, uh, if a brother or sister sins against you, so first of all, it's got to be a brother or sister in the church. This is not just anyone who sins against you in the world. Jesus is not teaching his disciples to go around confronting people who are not in the church. The Apostle Paul would say, direct quote in English, translated from Greek, what business do I have judging people in the world? Now, if you are a judge appointed in our culture, then you have some business. 
If you're a police officer, you probably have some business. If, you are a, if you've been given the office of father and mother over your children, potentially you have some business. If you are a supervisor of somebody in an official position and you've made an explicit contract to say, hey, I'm going to be held accountable to certain things, fine. But you being a Christian doesn't give you any business to go around judging people in the world. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? You don't have to agree with that. I, I do need you to know this is what the Scriptures are saying. We have no business judging people in the world. But if you are a baptized brother or sister in the Lord and you have sinned against me because we have a common allegiance to Jesus, because we have a common understanding of our future hope in Him, because we have a foundational ethic of love we've both agreed to in saying yes to Jesus, And because of our foundation that's established in Jesus, I can actually go to you privately with this expectation that we can be reconciled. Now, that's brother or sister. If a brother or sister sins, it's the first bold word up there, this is not just for any weakness or fault, friends. We'll see in a minute that this process, if someone doesn't respond well, could ultimately lead to something like estrangement or excommunication from a church community. So that's how we should be discerning of what to confront. What what sin should we confront? Well, listen, some of it's obvious, okay? Like physical abuse, various kinds of addictions, things which bring about scandal or division in the church. Jesus is eminently concerned about whether or not his church looks like him and whether or not somebody is causing peace or division in the community. So if it's a brother or sister and it's a sin, then Jesus says, go, which is a command. This is not a suggestion. And we must need to be commanded that if he's going to do that. Because just as there are some of us who are prone potentially to being overly critical, maybe judgmental, always fault-finding, you know, or whatever, others of us are, are very prone to passivity and hoping someone else takes care of the sins that we notice or something like this, right? To, to not confronting enough. Some of us are prone to that. And so we have this command to go, remembering that it's our duty to help one another follow Jesus. Do you know that? If you are a Christian in this room, now if you're not a Christian in this room, this is not to you, but it may be helpful for you to know what, what life ought to be like in the church, Okay? We Christians have a duty. I have a duty to you to help you follow Jesus, and you have a duty to me to help me follow Jesus. And to be mindful of the impact of our righteousness and sin in the community of God's people and of the way in which we participate in the reputation of Jesus in the world. It is not loving for you to leave my sin unchecked and let it wreak havoc in the world around me. And I am not loving you well by leaving your sin unchecked and letting it wreak havoc. And then finally in this first step, he says, privately or alone, all throughout Scripture, great care is taken for offenders, for the sick, for the sinner, for the unrighteous one in need of grace and forgiveness. More on that in a minute. And so if you go and you confront someone about their sin privately and they don't respond well, Jesus then tells us to then take one or two others along with us, step two, so that there are witnesses to the accusations. 
And you should, of course, consider who these people are and whether or not the person you're confronting will respect them. You should be very discerning about this, friends, if you go to step two, okay? Who who are trusted people in your community who will not gossip and who will care deeply for both you and the offender? Think mentors, leaders, don't think roommates and friends in your peer groups because bringing them along has the tendency to create more us versus you dynamics, and that's always rough. If anybody's ever come to you and said, we've been talking, immediately, that you are so vulnerable and they are so invulnerable all of a sudden, you know? So, so bring along one or two others. If, I, if I'm going to you and I'm bringing somebody that you know in the area of this, like let's say, I, I don't know, I'm just going to make something up right now. Let, let's say I'm a, I'm a teetotaler, like I don't drink at all, okay? And, I, and I've you got really drunk and you were obnoxious to me in the midst of your drunken stupor and I decide to bring along somebody else who doesn't ever drink to, to, to confront you. You, does, you see how that might not be the kindest thing for me to do? Maybe I ought to get somebody else who might, I don't know, you might think understands that like you, it's possible to drink without always drinking excess or something like this. I don't really know. That's maybe a dumb example. But the point is, if I'm going to bring someone else to you and I'm loving you and I care about your restoration, I'm not bringing somebody for me. I'm bringing somebody else that you trust so we can help restore you to the community in peace. And so I am bringing somebody specifically that I think you will feel valued by and honored by and trust. This whole teaching is given to facilitate unity and reconciliation, not division and cliques and us versus you. Okay, and if that happens and they still don't respond well, well then we bring it to the church, step three, to the community of people this Christian belongs to. And notice, notice at step three what great care is taken before a whole crowd is brought in. This person has been addressed privately and then with one or two trusted others and it almost never, I've been in this step-by-step process so many times with people, it almost never gets to step three if you do the first steps. But finally, if it doesn't work, you bring them to the whole community and if they still don't listen uh, to the way that their sin is impacting the community, then, and and the Greek is really interesting here and I'm not going to say much about it, I'm just going to highlight it for you, okay? Um, It says they are to be treated by the person who they sinned against as an outsider, which is kind of ambiguous. It's not necessarily exactly that the whole church should treat them like an outsider, but that the person who they sinned against can, can say, I, I, there are certain ways that we don't need to be interacting with each other right now. Like I'm gonna, and listen, we're still called to love our enemies. So just because this person's an outsider doesn't mean I don't love them. We're called to love outsiders and people in the world generally. Never is there an excuse not love, ever. But there is a, there's a fundamental change in the way the relational dynamics need to work within the church community all of a sudden. Okay, I'm going I'm to stop there because I want us to just notice a few things as we move toward a conclusion to this that I think are going to be really helpful. Um, this is Jesus' four-step process. First thing I want you to notice, and I already highlighted this, but going alone is vulnerable. Step one, going alone is vulnerable, and this is by design. Confronting someone makes them vulnerable. And Jesus, who came to us vulnerably and confronted the sin of the world in his vulnerability and humility, commands us that we too confront others in our vulnerability. How dare I potentially wound you without making myself vulnerable to you? 
Second, often when we realize what Jesus is commanding, we don't even get to step one. Just realizing the gravity of going to them alone and confronting them will make most of us, most of the time, decide to simply forgive someone without the need to confront them. Like most of the time, okay? Uh, and, and now, like we've already noted, if it's a sin pattern or, or a sin which is causing division and scandal, we're actually commanded to go. We don't have an option. We don't have an option if it's that level. But a lot of the times when we're nursing things which people have done against us, it's, it's not, it's, it's something, I'm going to be really minor right now, but we're petty, okay, as people. So these are the, you didn't text me back right away. Or you, did, you ignored my phone call last night. Or, or you, you didn't uh, put an, uh, an emoji on my text, you know, or something like this, like a heart symbol. Like, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that literally gets in my head sometimes. Like, I'm like, I put emojis on yours. How come you didn't do it on mine? That's so petty but real, you know? Um, it's so petty but real that, like, if that's the thing I'm wanting to confront you about, and I'm looking at Jesus' four-step process, potentially what I realize is, dude, I need to literally let this go. Like, I need to, like, just forgive that person or realize maybe it's not even a sin. I don't know. Like, do you see what I'm saying? But because if you, if you adhere to this, or I, let me say this in the reverse, if you don't adhere to Jesus' process, then what might you do instead? You might start talking and gossiping and telling other people about these little annoyances and grievances you have, and then train-wrecking somebody else's reputation, and throwing them under the bus when you made them vulnerable to a bunch of people they didn't even know you were making them vulnerable to, but you didn't have the courage or the humility to go be vulnerable with them. And so adhering to this often makes us go, you know what, we're cool. I'm going to let you off the hook. I find that to be a fascinating part of this process. Third, Notice how all over the scriptures, Jesus emphasizes a tremendous care for sinners. And this is utterly infuriating if you don't think you're a sinner. But if you remember that you too have hope because of the grace and mercy of God, if you realize that your hope is founded on the fundamental fact that in Christ Jesus you are forgiven that you are a great and beloved sinner. But you have your future sealed through the forgiving love of Christ Jesus toward you. If you can remember that, when God emphasizes care for sinners, that means you and me and everyone else, and it reminds us that that is what the heart of God is toward us, and that reality can melt your heart, friends. He, you might think somebody who has sinned against me doesn't deserve any care and compassion. Jesus says, I've come for the sick. I've come for the unwell. I've come to save sinners. It's a scandal. Fourth, in the words of one of my heroes, Dallas Willard, forgiveness does not mean I stop hurting, I forget what happened, or I treat the person exactly as before. Let me say that again. Forgiveness does not mean that I stop hurting, I forget what happened, or that I treat the person exactly as, we did, as I did before. Forgiveness just means I let them off the hook from the cycle of violence. 
And now with vengeance set aside and left to God, the work of unity can be built on forgiveness, which often will mean boundaries and change relational dynamics, which can actually promote flourishing for everyone. But, you know, we have this tendency to think vengeance is going to bring about justice, and it never does. Every time you pay somebody back, there's always like a remainder. You ever notice this? There's always a little bit extra. Recently, um, I saw, I, I probably shouldn't be telling you guys this, but I saw uh, an Instagram video that made me laugh so hard. Um, it was these two guys in New York City. They're two white dudes, if that matters. I don't know. I think it does in this case. I don't know why. But, but these two white dudes, and one guy's standing on the street. It's totally silent, the whole thing. And this one guy just flips the other guy off. And the other guy standing right in front of him flips him off. And they keep like taking two steps and just doing it back and forth for like, I don't know, 20 exchanges without a word. Without a word. And, and after the first, I don't know who started it, but after the second time, each of them feels like the other person deserves something back. Have you ever noticed how that, that's not in my notes, I don't know if that's, whatever I just said might just, you can email me or whatever, okay? Uh, but the, 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 there's this sense which when we think we're paying somebody back, we think we're getting even. God instituted to the Old Testament covenant people of Israel, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because our tendency is to overdo vengeance. When you pay somebody back, I, I, almost every time, there's a little remainder where they feel like we're not actually even. I need to pay you back. This came home to me a number of years ago. Somebody broke into my, somebody was stealing a bunch of stuff from my house. It was a strange situation. I actually do have an image of it somewhere on Instagram, which is actually interesting. But I, I, my dogs were barking. I heard some noise. My wife said, hey, somebody's in our garage. And, and I walked outside and I'm wearing just gym shorts and that's it. Uh, and I don't look terribly imposing, um, but, which matters for this story. But I, I walk out and I look and this guy has coming out of my garage with a bunch of tools in, my, in his hands. And I, and I looked at him and I was like, what are you doing? And he just, he looked at me like wide-eyed. And he just goes like this. He goes like this. He goes, <laughs> just, just locked eyes, sets my tools down, and then he starts to walk, you know, like toward down the driveway. And I, I don't know if it's like I'm smelling fear, but I just get real redneck. I don't know what the word is. I just get real, I shouldn't have said that. I get real um, territorial all of a sudden. And, uh, and I, I turn around and I, look, you guys, I'm talking about forgiveness, okay? Like, I, I think it's, it's really difficult to make an argument as a Christian for violence, okay? I went inside and grabbed a baseball bat. And I, I come, I... <laughs> I come out my door and I'm feeling so confident because this guy's walking away from me, I guess. I don't know. I've never seen this side of me before. It's there and it needs to be redeemed. And, and I'm like, just if I had shoulders, they'd be puffed out and chest, they'd be puffed out, you know. And I'm like, I start laughing at him and whatever. And he gets in his truck and he's freaking out. Uh, and he can't start his truck, and he, he's, in a, he's in absolute panic mode. And if you've been up my driveway, it's like driving up the moon uh, on a steep hill. It's like very difficult. And, and as he's trying to start his car, it keeps like backing up a bit. I don't know why. It's not rational. He's just freaking out. And he ends up backing his truck up into a tree, and he gets out of his car and starts sprinting down the road. And I, I'm like standing on top of my driveway. I'm like, you forgot your truck, you know? And I got this like accent all of a sudden. And my wife is like, who are you? You know, the whole deal. Okay. So all that is a preface to say this. I was telling my, there's a picture of this guy's truck in, in, on my Instagram story, um, Instagram account. Anyway, 
Uh, all that to say this. I was telling my friends this story, and they were like, oh, did you like hit his car with a baseball bat and stuff like that? And I was like, no, because for as amped up as I was on some kind of adrenaline, I had this thought. Even though he was breaking into my house, stealing my stuff, I thought if I hurt him or hurt his car, he might in his own way feel justified coming back later when I'm not home. Do you see that? And my friends were all like, but you're in the right. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Also, I don't know that that's the case. I don't think Jesus would have acted like I did. I, honestly, I might have said, buddy, you take my tools. Please just leave my family alone. Okay, you might need it more than I do. God bless you. Do you want lunch? That probably is what Jesus would have done. I swear to you, that probably is what he would have done. Okay, so already I'm way off script from following Jesus, all right? But my friends who were like, you know, this is gonna, he deserved to this, and he should know if he comes back to your house, something's gonna, and I was like, you don't, un- you don't understand. I got, you can say that because we're texting. My wife and kids are right here, bro, and if I'm not home, that's really terrifying if he comes back and feels like he has a score to settle. And as I tell that story, do you guys believe that? I mean, do you believe that somebody could think that way even though they broke into my house? Do you see what I'm saying? When we take vengeance out, there's always a remainder, and it doesn't actually promote justice. It just creates cycles that keep going and going and going. Think the Holy Lands right now. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. God's bringing rain down. Tell me I need to end. When you forgive... It turns out you can create a new foundation upon which something like unity can be built, though. Finally, if you hear all this stuff about forgiveness and you're thinking to yourself, well, it seems like this isn't corrective enough. It seems like it's not tending to justice well enough. And it leaves the person who's been sinned against too vulnerable. We Surely we should, shouldn't just keep forgiving somebody all the time. If you think anything like that, you are in such good company Because the Apostle Peter, upon whom the church was built, had similar thoughts, okay? Would would you put up that last uh, couple verses from Matthew again real quick that we read here? From Matthew 18, 21, 22. And then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times, which is a ton. If any of you are, if somebody has hurt one of your friends six or seven times in the same way. That's a lot, right? And Jesus said, I don't say seven, but 77. Jesus effectively says here, you will continue to forgive as often as repentance is possible, Peter. There is no bottom to forgiveness with my people. Friends, we need to know that God never grows tired of forgiving us. And we, his people, who are his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all, we are sent out into the world bearing witness to Jesus, which means we too are called to be a people within which forgiveness has no end. Friends, forgiveness is a commitment, not a feeling. If repentance is possible, forgiveness needs to be offered. When we are sinned against by our brothers and sisters, will you please go to them first privately and never gossip? And finally, let us hold fast to the promise that the forgiveness we have in Christ is sure and certain and there is no bottom to his forgiveness for you. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, have mercy on us now. Send your Spirit to uh, root out any root of bitterness in, in us, uh, to convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit, to move in forgiveness toward those people who have sinned against us. I'm mindful, Father, that uh, your Scriptures, your Son Jesus in particular says, that if we notice that we have sinned, we should take initiative and go be reconciled. And also, he said, if somebody has sinned against us, we should take initiative. And I'm mindful of how you, you place that initiative on us no matter what. Never waiting for somebody else, but always going first. Make us a people who do that. We look forward. I'm, I'm going to speak on behalf of my friends in this room. I don't know if everybody does, God, but I look forward. And, and I hope increasingly we all look forward to the day of judgment, actually when you will root out all the weeds and we can trust that all wrongs will be made right and that we will see that you are indeed faithful and just and the right one to have judgment and authority over all things. In the meantime, um, by the power of your Spirit, make us a people who live together in such a way that it's a, a better way of life in the world around us found our communities on forgiveness and reconciliation. Help us to trust in your forgiveness so much that we have it to offer to others. And thank you um, that you forgive us 70 times, seven times. In Jesus' name, amen.